We'll hear argument now in number 96-7185, Garrett Bates against the United States. Mr. Oren. Excuse the court. This case comes before you today as a result of the dismissal of an indictment by the District Court in the Northern District of Indiana in April of 1995 prior to the taking of any evidence in the case. However, the challenge to the sufficiency of the indictment actually began many months prior to that in an initial conference I had with Mr. Bates in my office. At that time, we went over the indictment paragraph by paragraph. At the end of that process, Mr. Bates thought for a minute, he looked at me, and he said, yes, but what is it they're telling me I did wrong? And I said, well, Mr. Bates, I believe that they're saying that you misapplied federal student loan funds. Mr. Bates thought about that for a minute, and then he said to me, yes, I understand that, but what is it specifically they're saying I did that was illegal? And I went back and I looked at the indictment, and I found that I could not really answer that question for him. I believe that exchange underscores the importance of this Court's standard for judging the sufficiency of an indictment, that being that all elements of the offense charge must be stated and that the indictment should fairly inform the defendant of the charges against him, as well as be sufficiently specific to stand as a bar to further prosecutions should there be a conviction or an acquittal. So what I'm asking of this Court is to strictly examine the indictment that was brought before Mr. Bates, that was brought against Mr. Bates. Well, you say strictly examine, Mr. Oren. Are you suggesting some extremely skeptical scrutiny of the language of an indictment? No, not extremely skeptical, Your Honor. I believe I'm using that in the sense that prior to evidence being taken, the only thing we have to look at is the indictment. If there was a dismissal after evidence had been taken, then I think that if there was no prejudice shown, then if the indictment was not sufficient, it would still not really be. So here you're saying all we have to look at is the indictment? That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. The indictment here is set forth in the Joint Appendix at pages 2 through 12. It is actually structured in two portions. The first portion is a series of basic background factual allegations, and the second portion are 12 specific charging counts, if you will. Directing the Court's attention to the first factual allegations, it provides, first of all, various background information, and then some specific allegations of conduct against Mr. Bates or by Mr. Bates. As a background information, 
it, it alleges that a James and Lorenda Jackson owned the Acme Institute of Technology. Now, now Mr. On the question presented here in the petition for certiorari is whether intent to injure or defraud the government is an element of the offense of knowingly and willingly, willfully misapplying federal student loan funds in violation of the statutory section. And I, I think the, the government apparently agrees that the indictment does not contain uh, uh, any allegation that it was done with an intent to injure or defraud the United States. So the question we have before us, as I would understand it, is, is that an element of the, of the offense? And I don't see why we need to be concerned with the various detailed allegations of the indictment. Um, my reasoning for bringing this to the Court's attention is that uh, the, again, the sufficiency of the indictment depends, I believe, on the actual setting forth of the elements of the offense in the indictment. Yes, and but it, we're not canvassing the indictment for some shortcoming. It's a very precise issue that you've presented in the question for certiorari. Yes. All right. Um, assuming, then, that the government uh, is agreeing that there is no factual allegations alleging uh, of the uh, elements of the, of the offense as we believe it to be. Well, there's no agreement on whether it's an element of the offense. I mean, whether uh, fraudulent intent um, is an element. Is there? There's no agreement. No, there is not. Uh, it is my understanding that, at least in the courts below, the government has agreed that conversion or unauthorized use uh, of property to the benefit of the defendant or a third party is an element of the offense. But where there is no agreement between the government and Mr. Bates is that whether or not fraudulent intent or criminal intent is an element of the offense of knowingly and willfully misapplying student loan funds. Um, well, it doesn't say it's, it, here's the statute, 1097A, it doesn't say with intent to defraud the United States. Why should we read that into it? Well, uh, this does present an issue of statutory uh, construction, Justice Ginsburg. Um, I believe that there are four principles that, of statutory construction that would support this reading. The first of that is, the first principle would be the actual language of the statute itself. I believe there are uh, indications in there that of the uh, scienter element, that being the words or the terms knowingly and willfully as modifying misapplies. Um, he was charged with that, several counts of <coughs> knowingly and willfully misapplying federal money, was he not? Yes. That was the language used. That's, that is correct. And, and your argument, as I understand it, is that knowingly and willfully somehow incorporates a fraudulent intent, even though the statute otherwise in describing not merely the in describing not the the the, the offensive misapplication, uh, but a different kind of offense of obtaining 
refers expressly to fraud as one forbidden means of obtaining property. Uh, and, and isn't that the nub of your problem? Uh, the statute refers to fraud elsewhere, but you want us to import the concept of fraud uh, into, into a term which on its face uh, has no apparent reference to fraud. I am uh, using the term fraudulent intent, I believe, uh, as synonymous with or indicative of what uh, would be called specific intent at the common law or uh, illegal purpose. I think fraudulent intent is actually very descriptive of specific intent when it comes to the use or misuse of money. Uh, So what I'm suggesting is that fraudulent intent is specific intent or illegal purpose, and that that is, in fact, an element of the offense of misapplication of funds. Well, leaving aside whether you were entitled to it or not, didn't you get, uh, didn't the Seventh Circuit take the position that the government would have to prove uh, under the, uh, uh, the concept of willfully, that the government would have to prove that the misapplication was made with an understanding of, of, uh, uh, of the, that it violated the law? Wasn't that the Seventh Circuit's definition of willfully? The Seventh Circuit, in my estimation, issued an opinion which was slightly confusing because in one part they did refer to the uh, burden of the United States to actually prove some knowledge of wrongdoing. Yet on the other hand, they said that the offense of willful, uh, willful, knowingly and willfully misapplying funds did not include the element of fraudulent intent. Yeah, but fraudulent intent, as we normally use the term, is something different from uh, an intent to misuse property with knowledge that the misuse is in fact forbidden by a federal statute. Those are two different concepts. I don't see any inconsistency uh, between those two aspects of the circuit opinion. Why are they inconsistent? To obtain by fraud, as we normally mean it, uh, is to is to make a, a misrepresentation, misrepresentation of fact to someone as a means of getting that person's property. Uh, and that's something entirely distinct from committing an act, whatever the act may be, with a knowledge that there is a statute that forbids the act. And it seems to me that that's the, that's the distinction certainly inherent in the Seventh Circuit opinion, and I don't see why it's a distinction uh, that isn't a perfectly valid one. I would, I, I guess, uh, rely on the Morissette case, uh, where the, this court held the knowing conversion of government property included a criminal intent which would require the government to show that the defendant, Morissette, had knowledge 
of all the facts which would have made his conduct a conversion. And I do not believe that that holding is exactly what was being stated by the Seventh Circuit. Well, it seems to me that it seems to me the equivalent of that in the current context would be knowing all the facts that renders the uh, uh, the action a misapplication. Wouldn't that be the precise equivalent of what went on in Morissette? Yes. And and do you think the uh, you think the holding here? did not require him to know all of the facts that, that rendered this a misapplication? Unless I'm mistaken, you're, you're demanding that he know more than the facts that rendered it a misapplication. You're demanding that he not only uh, knew all those facts, but that he also uh, had some, um, uh, what should I say, criminal motive in the misapplication. And I thought that's what we're fighting about. Now, I don't see that Morissette speaks to that at all. I believe that Morissette speaks to this issue in this way. Uh, Morissette referred to a species, or a, referred to every stealing being a conversion, yet not every conversion being a stealing. What Morissette, I believe, was doing was distinguishing between the tort of conversion as opposed to a criminal conversion. And in, in again, in Morissette, uh, they referred to a type of conversion which could occur when the property first came into possession of the defendant in a lawful manner but was later misused. And I believe that that type of conversion, that species of conversion, is exactly what misapplication is. Well, Mor Morissette was a statute which didn't contain any requirement of intent, wasn't it? I believe that it uh, stated the uh, uh, modifying term of knowing conversion uh, in, in the statute. To that extent, it, it did indicate that there was uh, an element of, tent, of intent present. The words of Morissette are, are these. Uh, knowing conversion requires more than knowledge that the defendant was taking property into his possession. He must have had knowledge of the facts, though not necessarily the law, that made the taking a conversion. Now, if you apply that same text to the present case, I think you'd say, you'd say knowing misapplication requires more than knowledge that um, he was uh, applying the property. He must have had knowledge of the facts, though not necessarily the law, that made the application a misapplication. And, and there's no quarrel that that's properly charged, is there? Uh, no, that, I, I believe that would be a proper statement as to the um, offense of misapplication. Uh, 
And I don't believe that I was trying to suggest anything more than that in my use of the term fraudulent intent. But the, the Seventh Circuit would give you even more than Justice Scalia just yes, suggested that you were entitled to. Under the Seventh Circuit opinion, you would, you would be entitled to an instruction uh, that the government had to prove that you knew you were violating your client, knew that he was violating the law. So you're getting more, in fact, than, than on, your, on your own theory Morissette would give you. Um, I really um, do not know how to answer that. Um, I did not read the, the Seventh Circuit opinion in that, in that manner. What do you do with the, the uh, 1097D, which states in so many words um, that there must be an intent to defraud the United States? with intent to defraud the United States. That very language in the same section in D is omitted from A. So if it's in D and it's not an A, wouldn't one infer that Congress didn't mean it to be read into A? I believe that, first of all, they are talking about two separate types of actions in A and in, and in D. I think the uh, and in subsection D, they're talking about uh, destroying uh, or concealing property with fraudulent intent. Uh, and those uh, words in normal usage uh, would not be destroying and concealing property would not ordinarily have uh, a criminal consequence. Isn't, didn't you win this? I mean, I, I'm trying to put your argument in a way that to me was the strongest, and maybe you don't mean it this way, but, but there seem to be two parts. One on the willfully part, and I take it you won that, that the government's going to have to show that your client knew that what he was doing was unlawful. Didn't you win that part? I believe perhaps we did, yes. All right, so the government would have to show whatever your client did, he knew it was unlawful, as far as the lower opinion goes. Or right, then there seems to be a second part, what you're calling fraudulent intent, which doesn't have to do with the first part. Now, in reading the opinion, but not your brief, I thought they were, the words fraudulent intent covered two separate things. Intent to defraud, which isn't involved here because there isn't a misrepresentation, or intent to injure. They worked with that second part, intent to injure or defraud, intent to injure the government or to defraud the government. And, of course, the government would show intent to injure in that it would be the known consequence of what your client allegedly did. He deprived the government of the use of some money. That injures the government. I took the circuit as saying, the issue is whether there has to be a specific intent to injure, i.e., do they have to show that your client wanted, in the sense of purpose, to hurt the government? Uh, if you're going to yes. tell me this argument is not in the case, I'm prepared to forget it. <laughs> I, 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 and I don't want to make an argument for you, but I, 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 I want to uh, 
when I read the, not necessarily the brief, but the opinion below, I thought maybe you were talking about specific intent to injure the government. If you're not, if you're talking about specific intent to defraud the government, I agree with Justice Souter. I don't see that it's here. I believe I was using the term fraudulent intent to refer to specific intent and illegal purpose as that relates to this indictment I do not believe that the Seventh Circuit opinion would have provided us with any greater information about what use the government was alleging was the problem with Mr. Bates' conduct. Do you agree that if all of the facts in the indictment are established, uh, that there was a misapplication? No, I do not. I do not agree with that. I do not believe that the indictment states facts that show a misapplication. Well, is, Nor- is, is that the problem then and, and, and not the precise formulation of the scienter that's required since we have knowing and willful? What, why was there no misapplication in, in your view? Uh, the indictment does not state any factual allegation of any use of the funds by Mr. Bates. It does it states, I believe. Does, does he have to use the funds if he if if one diverts funds uh, from, say, a trust fund? I know that that wasn't what this was, but if one diverts funds uh, for an unauthorized purpose, that's a misapplication, isn't it? Yes, but so it doesn't it, that, for his own use. The allegation is not in the indictment that Mr. Bates did anything with funds. But whether the allegations as to Bates's conduct were sufficient to state an offense, that's not the basis on which the district court dismissed the indictment, and that's not the basis on which the Court of Appeals reversed the district court, and that's not presented in your question here. Uh, The argument that I have presented consistently from the district court's opinion was that there were no factual allegations setting forth the elements of the offense. And if you look at the... You're you're limited, Mr. Hunter, to the question presented here. And the question presented in your particular... is whether intent to injure or defraud the government is an element of the offense of knowingly and willfully misapplying federal student loan funds in violation of the statute. Yes. Uh, Yes. I agree that is the question presented. The reason we got to that point as being the question presented is because there was nothing in the factual allegations to suggest the elements of the crime. And if you look at the actual charging counts, it states the words of the statute. And it's our position that the term misapplies is intrinsically vague. Well, and but now it does allege that he did knowingly and willfully misapply. There's no doubt about that, right? That's that's correct. 
but it is intrinsically vague. Thus, I believe that to meet the standards of actually setting forth the elements, they, the indictment should have stated at least the conceptual but elements. Of that, the that's not the question you've brought here. The, the, you know, I, I don't want to repeat it again, but we granted certiorari on a particular question, and it's not that one. Do you understand what I mean? Yes, yes, I do. Would it help if I ask um, what you think they should have added? Maybe that would, in terms of purpose or fraudulent purpose, what I read is that they say that Mr. Bates was the treasurer, that by March 89, the refund liability had grown to 85,000, that there was a report which said that the institution of which he was the treasurer didn't make the refund to the government and instead loaned a lot of money to the chief trustee and other institutions. And in light of that, I take it, he, they charged that the defendant knowingly and willfully misapplied the money or some of that money. All right, now, what, in your opinion, what words should have been added to this indictment that would help from your point of view? Well, I think at the very least that the, the indictment should have stated uh, that it um, that the defendant did knowingly and willfully misapply funds in a certain amount by converting those funds to his use with by what I'm sorry by converting those funds to his use or the use of a third party with intent to defraud that I believe would have made this indictment barely sufficient so that Mr. Bates would have at least known the essence of the charges against him. Well, he knew the charge was, was that he knowingly and willfully misapplied. Uh, if I understand your position, he knows that the statute requires you to use the funds for X. He knowingly and willfully uses the funds for Y. And, according to the Court of Appeals opinion, knowing that that's a violation of the law. He not only knows that he's using it for Y instead of X, but he knows that that is a violation of the law. You say that that's not enough, right? You're saying he must, in, in addition to misapplying it, intend by the misapplication to defraud the government. I really did not intend for the I, uh, fraudulent intent, and I did not mean to convey the, the thought that, that fraudulent intent was specific as against the United States. Uh, that, I believe, was the... Or, or defraud somebody. To defraud someone. Defraud, defraud someone. It's not enough that he knows the statute tells me to use the money for X. I'm going to use it for Y. And you say he can do that without violating this statute, so long as in ignoring the command to use it for X, he was not trying to defraud anybody. He's just, he just, I don't know, he thought this statute was silly or inconsequential, so he said, I'm not going to use it for X, I'm going to use it for Y. And you say that's okay, that, that, that it may be uh, 
Maybe they can get that corrected, but it's not a crime. I believe uh, my point was uh, that we are not informed what the factual misuse is. Now you're back to the pleading question that the Chief Justice keeps telling you is not in this case. It's really not in this case. I mean, you've got to get back to tell us what it it is. Anyway, they do say what the factual thing is. They say that it went to the uh, — he used the money for uh, these other people. He gave it to the — he loaned substantial amounts of money to the chief trustee and a non-related profit-making institution. Um, in which paragraph? In, in paragraph 13. That statement or allegation does not say anything about Mr. Bates's conduct. There are a lot of allegations in this about other people that doesn't inform us about Mr. Bates' conduct. And the reason that I have used the term fraudulent intent is that I was using it in the sense that it was used, in the sense that it is a uh, specific intent and a legal purpose uh, to distinguish the same type of, of behavior in a misapplication scenario as was distinguished in Morissette, a, the tort of conversion from the crime of conversion. I believe this is just a subset of that, and that at the very least, that element of fraudulent intent should have been set forth in the indictment in as much as that well, would it really boils down to what does the word misapply or misapplication mean they said knowingly misapply and you say when you say misapply it includes a lot of other stuff other than doing the wrong th- thing with the funds knowing what you, the right thing was but it all turns on what the word misapply means doesn't it yes it does you read a lot into it, they read very little into it. They wouldn't even read the, as I read their brief, they wouldn't even require you to know that it was a misapplication. All you have to know is what you did with it, which seems a little extreme to me. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Oren. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Blatt, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The decision below is correct because both the text and structure of Section 1097 compel the conclusion that an intent to injure or defraud is not an element of the misapplication offense. Would you agree with with the circuit that um, the misuse has to be knowing that it's an exercise of control or dominion that's a violation of the law? No. Yes, we disagree. Uh, In our view, the word, um, all that's required is that the defendant know that his use of the money is unauthorized. The defendant does not also have to know the source of the prohibition or that using the money in an an unauthorized manner 
was a violation of the law. If the term misapply is uh, not clearly established in the law, then does not that um, argue in favor of, of interpretation of willful and knowingly, such as the circuit gave, knowing that it is a violation of the law? Because misapplies, as I take it, not a well-settled term in, in our jurisprudence, or is it? Perhaps I'm wrong. Um, the Court said in um, United States versus Britain in 1883 that misapplication was not a technical or a word at common law. It was a word uh, created by statute. And in that case, uh, the Court gave it a definition of uh, misapplication to one's use um, or the use of another of someone else's funds, and that meant it was a conversion. And these funds did not have to be segregated at, at the time of the conduct here, did they? They didn't have to be put in a segregated account, did they? That's correct. Uh, could a third-party creditor have levied on them? I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. Let me, let me just raise the difficulty that I have <clears throat> with, with the government's position that the, um, the source of the prohibition uh, need not be shown, that the knowledge of specific illegality need not be shown. Uh, the mens rea requirement is knowingly and willingly. Uh, and uh, if, if we exclude from the possible meaning of willingly this intent to defraud, and I, I will so assume, um, what's left for the meaning of willingly uh, as uh, – willfully, I'm sorry uh, – as something in addition to knowingly? The, the, the circuit, uh, I thought, made a pretty good, good guess at it. And I realize that our prior cases that have construed it that way have been tax cases. But what else could it plausibly mean? Well, we think here it means what it means in almost every case, and that is deliberately. Which, which is how the court construed the words willfully and knowingly um, in United States versus Browder. And, the, uh, and so the common understanding of the word willfully is intentionally. What, what, what is knowingly wow. then? Yeah, that's the, that's the trouble because this repeats knowingly. I mean, surely knowingly means intentionally, no? Sure. Let me, let me address that in, in several parts. Um, and this court in Morissette said, use the words both intentional and knowing. And you could certainly have a knowing act that's not deliberate. I agree that it would be very difficult to have a deliberate well, act. Well, you could have a knowing act that is not purposeful in the sense that the model penal code makes the distinction. But how can you have a knowing act that is not deliberate? Um, I, I push um, you into someone and you knowingly hit that person, but you're not deliberately hitting that person. It's not voluntary. Right, it's not voluntary. Right, right. In our view, the word willfully means voluntary, deliberately, in the sense that the act is, is done voluntarily. But when you, excuse me, I'm sorry, no, go ahead. Which is, I, I, again, I think the way the court uh, construed it in Browder. But let me make one other point. If you construe the word willfully to mean uh, a voluntary, intentional violation of a known legal duty, as in Pomponio, I, th I still think you have the same problem with the word knowing, because it's hard to have an unknowing, intentional violation of a known legal duty. The government didn't cross-petition here, did it? Right. No. So we really don't have to decide right. whether the Court of Appeals was right in what it said. That's exactly correct. We just wanted you to know our view. And, and in our view, the words willfully but, and knowingly 
which just required that the defendant know that his use of the funds was unauthorized. But you, but you, you do seem to say that he had to know that it was unauthorized. So he has to have some knowledge of the duty, of some knowledge of what his duties were. Isn't that your position? Yes, the defendant so, must know that the money, and in this case, belonged to the, the uh, lender after the student withdrew. He did not have to know that the source of the, of the prohibition of holding on to the money when it belonged to someone but else. did he not, under your view, have to know that there were regulations out there that required him to use the funds in one way rather than another? No, not in the sense of specific regulations, no. It so happens in this case that it is alleged that the defendant was familiar with the Department of Education's regulations. Well, at page 15 of, of your brief, you say uh, the element requires that the defendant be aware that his use of the funds is unauthorized or wrongful. That's correct. And it, I, I'm not quite sure how that squares with the answer you just gave Justice Stevens. Yeah. Suppose he doesn't know about the regulations. Right. Well, he'd have to have some other way of knowing that the use was unauthorized, such as the school's manual required uh, the refunds back to the lender uh, in order to reduce the student's debt. So there, there's a, 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 a felony if you violate the, the, the provisions in a school's guidebook or manual? There's a felony if you knowingly and intentionally convert money when you know the money truly belonged to someone else. And that's a, it's definitely, it's a property crime. It's the crime of conversion. And all we're saying here is that the defendant's acts must be deliberate, and the defendant must know that this money belongs to someone else. Well, the ordinary person, I guess, knows when he takes somebody else's money and uses it to buy something that the other person doesn't really want him to do, that that's probably a crime, ordinary conversion. Right. And, and what, are, what about the 40,000 pages of, of, of rules that govern in detail how one is supposed to apply federal money. Anyone who violates any one of those rules is, is guilty of a crime. No. I mean, there would have to be two things. There would have to be the requisite criminal intent, and there, there would also have to be the conduct of a conversion. And just a, a technical violation of the rule, for instance, if the defendant um, miscalculated the amount of the refund, that would be a violation of the regulation. But you wouldn't have the requisite criminal intent. What do you mean by requisite criminal intent? I don't understand. That the defendant, that his conduct be deliberate and the defendant know that the money should have been returned. Don't know for what reason should it have been returned. Just have some general hunch it should have been returned or must he know why it should have been returned? In this case and in most cases, the source of the knowledge is going to be the law because it will be the Department of Education's regulations. Our point is that the word willfully does not have this meaning of requiring knowledge of illegality, which is the way the Court of Appeals construed it. But do, it, you, do you understand this indictment to require the prosecutor in this case to prove that this defendant knew that there were regulations that he violated? No. No, the indictment just said he had to act willfully, which, again, in our view, would mean he had to act deliberately. But you also said with criminal intent, but he could have criminal intent even if he did not know that the regulations prohibited what he did. As long as he has another, uh, some knowledge that his conduct was prohibited. But the only thing that prohibited the conduct was the regulations. That's the, that's the source of his duty to do something else. And you say he does not have to know. He has to know the duty. 
how could he know the duty without knowing what the regulations require? I don't understand. He could have uh, the source of the duty could not only come from the school's manual, it could come from his boss. But it didn't in this case. Right. We're trying a particular case in which it, it, there was a misapplication because what he did did not conform to some regulations. Right. You agree you must prove that he knew what he did was wrongful, and the only reason it would be wrongful was that he didn't comply with the regulations, but you say you don't have to prove he, he knew he was not complying with the regulations. In this Your ca- position is inconsistent. In this case, Justice Stevens, I think the proof would come, and the indictment does allege that the defendant knew of the legal requirement to pay refunds. So then you are, are agreeing that in this case you must prove that he knew he was violating the regulation. No, I'm saying in this case we can prove that. I'm not saying that we must prove it. Well, how else could you prove a knowing misapplication in this case? Oh, in this case, if the defendant had read the manual or if the defendant had a discussion with the financial aid director and the financial aid director said the Department of Education requires this, uh, he would understand that, okay, this money needs to go to a lender, and he's uh, intentionally engaging in a wrongful act by holding on to it. But that's because you would have proved that he knew that the regulations required. His knowledge may have come through an oral conversation. He doesn't have to read the regulation. But I, I do think you either have to agree that you have to prove that he knew he was violating a government command, or you don't have to prove that. And I think you've admitted you do have to prove it. No, no I, I've admitted we can prove it. I don't think we do have to prove but it. What other way could you prove a knowing misapplication in this particular factual context? If the school's manual set forth, which in this case it did, the duty to return money after students' withdrawal. You could also have a situation where um, the person you think that would be a crime even if the government regulations didn't require it? No, that wouldn't be a crime not because of the intent. You just wouldn't have the crime of conversion. If the money is, in fact, not used consistent with its authorized purposes, you would not have a crime to yeah, begin Ms. with. Ms. Platt, I'd, I'd really like to at least get a, a few of your thoughts on the issue that was actually brought up before us. And, and if, if no one else thinks it's even worth uh, talking about. I do, anyway. Uh, let's assume, uh, it seems to me, it, 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 it's not as cut and dried as, as you make it out. You, you, you have a list of words, embezzles, steals, obtains by fraud, false statements, or forgery. And in the midst of those words, you have another word thrown in that, that, that doesn't have as much uh, currency in, in the common law, misapplies. Now, it's a rudimentary um, canon of interpretation. Uh, it's called a justum generis, that when, when you have a general word that's in a catalog of other words, you give it the same, the same coloration that those other words bear. And it seems very extraordinary to me to find the word misapplies, as you interpret it. Just, you know, well, I know it ought to go in this account, but, you know, I'm going to put it in this. What's the difference? You know, I'm not, I'm not stealing it. It won't hurt the government. I'm just going to put it in this other account. I know it's the wrong account, but uh, I think it's just as good, you know. To find that word, as you interpret it, in the middle of these other ones, embezzles, steals, obtains by fraud, false statement, or forgery, and then, you know, to have a, a, one-year, uh, a, a one-year imprisonment for it. Uh, why shouldn't I apply the... the, the the canon of Aeustum generis and say, yeah, well, I don't, you know, it's, it's a strange word, misapplies, but uh, if it said takes, I certainly wouldn't say if, 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 you, if you took it without any intent of, of keeping it or anything like that. 
I, I think it's, a, it's a, a very plausible that you have to have some wrongful intent in the misapplication, other than you just know you're putting it in the wrong account number. I put it in account 1001 instead of 1008. Who cares? That's not embezzles, obtains by fraud, and so forth. Justice Scalia, we interpret the word misapply to mean convert, which is, in Morset, this court construed in, in connection with similar words such as um, stealing and embezzlement. And the court said that there are distinctions between those terms. And uh, there's nothing innocent about using property in a way you're not supposed to use it. Uh, and, and, and as long as you are performing an act that's deliberate and you know that your use is unauthorized, it should be a crime. You don't separately need to prove fraudulent or injurious intent. And, again, not only do we have the, the text of the statute where fraud is separately prohibited, but we have the words uh, with intent to defraud the United States in, su- in subsection 1097D. And it, it's, it's those textual features and structural features that make it clear that an intent to defraud or an intent to injure is not an element of the misapplication. So suppose that, that you have a university where you're a financial officer, and you are dealing with lots of money, and uh, there are probably rules uh, that are fill dozens of manuals. And you perhaps know them. And one day you say, my goodness, I'm going to pay the groundsmen and not the professors uh, for a week. And the reason you're doing it is there's, there's some kind of odd shortage, and they're poor, so you want to pay them. Is it against the manual rule? Yes. You know it. You'd never think it was a crime. Now, on your interpretation of the law, they're guilty. Very well. On that interpretation of the law, looking at your statement of the question, which you thought was a rephrasing of his statement, why wouldn't you read the statute that there would not only have to be knowledge that your conduct was injuring the government, but that you would have to want to injure the government, i.e., you'd have to have a specific intent to injure the government before you would be guilty under such circumstances of a felony? Now, that's, that, that's taking your — I don't know that I agree with your interpretation. Right. But assuming that I did agree with your interpretation of willfully, then the question that's raised here would immediately come into mind. At least, would you not have to re- — before putting people in prison because they violated one of 5,000 uh, uh, accounting manuals that are in a university, shouldn't that person at least have to want to hurt the government, rather than just knowing that the government will be deprived of 10 minutes' use? of uh, some funds that he put in a different account. We do not think uh, an intent to injure is required. And even under the common understanding of conversion and embezzlement, the law is quite well well settled that an intent to replace the money is not a defense. So you could take your employer's money. Your view, then, is what Congress intended is to take any person in a university, educational institution, anywhere, and all they do is have to know that somebody in the organization told them, put the money over here rather than they're, they're guilty of a felony. Well, you still have to have the underlying conversion. And in the example you gave, I don't The think underlying conversion, according to you, is to take some government funds and use them in any manner for however short a period of time, mm-hmm. contrary to what your boss told you should be done. Well, and, and of course. And the regulations supports the ball. No, and of course you have to convert it to your own use or the use well, of the Well, the another. use you told about was not necessarily your personal desire. You, you right. desired to put it in 
account A rather than account B. Well, it, ha- it still has to be for either your use or the use of a third party. I suppose under Justice Breyer's hypothetical construction, it would be a defense for a person to say, I knew I was taking $40,000 of the government's money, but I didn't intend to hurt them. They had millions back in Washington. Right, and it's, it's, it's not a defense to... It suggests that something's wrong somewhere. Yeah. I mean, no. just a matter of... <laughs> no. No, you can't. I mean, it is really, it is quite well settled that it's not a defense to either embezzlement or conversion to take money hoping that uh, the person's not hurt because you're going to give it back. And here, the school cannot defend um, on the uh, argument that, well, we didn't intend to hurt the government because these students are ultimately going to repay the loan. The government's not going to be hurt. Or we intended to pay the refund someday. Well, this wasn't embezzlement because the funds could be commingled and, and be used, I take it, for other purposes, provided some other funds were adequate ultimately to make up the shortfall. Isn't that the rule? The, the crime here, Justice Kennedy, is on the failure to refund on the 60th day. And so the how they spend the money up until the student withdrawal and the amount so if a, if a thief comes in and, and and takes the money and takes the money it's still a violation not to refund it oh if 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 they can't if, if it's if they if it's not a voluntary act i, I thought you said the, vi- the, the violation is not making the refund within 60 days with the requisite intent and that would have to be both a voluntary act and a knowing act and if someone stole other money, well, they don't have the money because they a somebody stole it, b they paid some other account. Well, the distinction again, and I think the words knowingly and willfully would take care of that. You wouldn't, in any event, need to read intent to defraud into the statute. But the issue would turn on whether the act is voluntary and knowing, or if for some reason it was beyond the defendant's control. And um, but but that would be the the guiding principles. And if uh, a defendant is intentionally spending this money uh, that's not theirs and it's not earned until the student finishes the term and doesn't pay the refund obligation, knowing the money has got to go back to the lender within 60 days, you have a misapplication of Title IV funds. Suppose they think they're going to get other sums to make up the shortfall, and they, just, and they, and they don't. Something just happens. They should not have been spending unearned money, and if they're intentionally spending that unearned money, and, and these schools are fiduciaries with respect to this money as well, if they do not organize their affairs or intentionally organize their affairs such that money is not available when students withdraw, in our view, the statute uh, would cover it. But, but, but again, I mean, the issue is whether an intent to defraud or injure would be required when there's nothing in the text or the history or the, or the structure of the statute suggests that it should be read into it. Item, uh, in conclusion, if there are no questions. Thank you, Ms. Blatt. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.